Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Very good. Well, uh, do keep uh, your Bibles open to uh, Ezra chapter 8, page 480, as we continue looking through this book. It's been another desperately tragic week. A gunman opening fire in a Florida nightclub, leaving 49 dead. And then, of course, the fatal attack on MP Joe Cox. And then there was the little boy, Lane Graves, seized and killed by an alligator at Disney World, of all places. And news this morning that the body of mother of four, Kirsty Aitchison, was recovered from the River Clyde. I doubt that on the day that any of those poor people died, they woke up that morning thinking that they wouldn't go to bed as usual at the end of the day. But in this broken world that we live in, the shadow of death hangs over us. It is, of course, why the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ is relevant to everyone. And if only for that reason, we should long for the church to be all that it should be. We need a church that is active in proclaiming the gospel of life because none of us knows when death is going to grab us. It's crucial that the church is warm and attractive and relevant when people come through our doors because if someone has made the huge effort to come here only to find it boring and irrelevant and unfriendly, they may never come back and may never hear the momentous news of the gospel that brings hope in the face of death. And that's why in this nation where the church is so often lacking, We need to work so hard to see the church reformed to become all that it should be. This broken world needs the message that we have been given, the message of life, eternal life beyond the grave. Through the book of Ezra, we've been asking, how are we going to realise a reformation in the church in this land? And last week in chapter 7, we saw that for a reformation in the church to come about, we need to be having the Bible at the heart. We need Bible teachers. We need someone who is going to bring the word of God to us. Ezra was a teacher devoted to God's word. Do you remember that from last week? And God used Ezra to bring about a change among his people. But any real reformation needs more than a teacher or even a number of teachers And in Ezra chapter 8, we see more of what is needed for reformation to happen. And first, for a reformation to happen, we need, uh, the points are going to come up on the screen, we need God's people seeking God's kingdom first. This is verses 1 to 20. At the end of chapter 7, halfway through the last verse, Ezra writes, because the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Chapter 8 is then that gathering of leading men. And verses 1 to 14 is a list of all the people who were living in Babylon at the time who agreed to travel with Ezra back to Jerusalem to bring about a reformation in Jerusalem. The first 14 verses of this chapter is difficult to read. And it's also, yes, another list that we might think is about as interesting as the school register. Except we've discovered that through this book, when we think carefully about these lists, we discover all sorts of wonderful things. I mean, you just have to get your calculator up and add the numbers here, and we see large numbers seeking first God's kingdom. 
Uh, nearly 1,500 men registered to make the move from Babylon to Jerusalem. It was a 900-mile journey. Uh, that doesn't mention, of course, the women and children. These numbers are impressive. And it is a great reminder that when lots of people respond together, things really can change. I regularly look at us as we gather here on a Sunday, morning and evening, around about a thousand of us all in all. I think to myself, if all of us together were united together in being sold out for Jesus Christ, ready to go wherever and do whatever he wanted, we could make a huge impact on this part of the world. See, never mind all of us, just think what has happened when 50 people have gone from here to plant a church in another part of the city. 11 or 12 years ago, 50 people started Christchurch Central. It's now a weekly gathering of 250, 300 people on a Sunday. Seven or eight years ago, 50 people went from here to start Christchurch Encliffe. Now a church of 150 adults on a Sunday. And they've started a second service now because they can't fit everybody into the one service comfortably. In a time when other churches are dying, when you get 50 people who really want to make a difference churches grow I'm excited to think about our next church plant and the thought of another 40 or 50 people leaving to start a new church somewhere in South Yorkshire see the numbers alone in this list are impressive and when numbers of people respond together the church is reformed the numbers are big but the names are fascinating as well now this list in chapter 8 is not unlike the list in chapter 2 when, do you remember, 80 years earlier, the Lord had first moved in the hearts of his people so that they returned from exile in Babylon to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now the temple's rebuilt. Now there's something else that needs to go on. But Ezra needs some people to go with him. So there's a strong parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 8. And as we compare the list of names with the list in chapter 2, we discover that Of the 13 families that are mentioned here in chapter 8, 11 of them feature in chapter 2, causing uh, a Bible writer, Dale Rife Davis, to write, covenant fidelity tends to run in families. See, the language of covenant fidelity may not instantly mean much to us, but um, the point is very helpful. He's basically saying, when families are faithful to the Lord, putting the Lord first, putting his kingdom first... That very often filters down to the next generation in a family and the next. See, 80 years earlier in chapter 2, families had made this hugely sacrificial move from Babylon to Jerusalem. And now when there was a call on others to go to Jerusalem, the majority who went went from the same families. God works in families. I kind of experience this every autumn when I talk to new students arriving in Sheffield for university. When I ask them how they came to know Jesus Christ, many of them, probably the majority of them, come from Christian homes. Their parents have lived for Christ and taught their children about Christ and now as they move from the family home to university, they've made finding a church a priority. Covenant fidelity tends to run in families. I see it here in this congregation. In my mind's eye, I can picture family trees where at the top of the tree is is a couple who've put Jesus first in their lives. 
And all their children have married Christians and put Jesus first in their families. And now many of the next generation are going on with the Lord and creating more faithful Christ-centered families. From one faithful, committed Christian couple, one family serving the Lord, putting him first and his kingdom first, flows a whole, if I can put it this way, dynasty of Christian families. Of course, there are no guarantees here. Most of us will be able to cite stories of faithful Christian couples whose children now don't follow the Lord. But the point is there are many who do. And I do hope that's a great encouragement to godly Christian parents here. As you live out kingdom principles, teaching your children to put first the kingdom of God, it will very often bring them to a true and living faith of their own and they in turn will seek first God's kingdom and God works in families. 11 out of the 13 families listed here had relatives who had clearly demonstrated a commitment to seeking first God's kingdom by making the difficult move to Jerusalem 80 years earlier. But in this list, there are also two new families as well. And that is an encouragement for families who are, can I put it this way, first-generation Christian families, families like mine. I wasn't brought up in a Christian family although my parents did become Christians later on in life. And Caroline, my wife, had a Christian mum, but uh, when she was growing up, her dad wasn't a Christian, although he too became a Christian later on in life. So you see, for Caroline and I, neither of having been raised in Christian families are now a a first-generation Christian family. And this is such an encouragement to me that as we seek first God's kingdom, making the Lord Jesus and his kingdom our priority, in all the big things of life, And as we teach our children why we do what we do, why we're putting Jesus first, how we're doing that, as we teach them that, we trust that they will become wholehearted followers of the Lord Jesus and they will put him first and above everything else and demonstrate that that same kingdom priority in their families in the future. Covenant fidelity tends to run in families. And that contributes hugely to the reformation and growth of the church I doubt there are many mums here. They're probably at home looking after the children. I mean, you know, mums of young children. But I want to say to them, in case they are here, or you can pass it on to them, or they're listening to the recording of this, keep up the good work. And dads, keep leading by example. What a difference it makes. So here in chapter 8, we see God's people seeking first God's kingdom, uh, large numbers seeking first God's kingdom, whole families seeking first God's kingdom, and then thirdly, some being persuaded to seek first God's kingdom. This is verses 15 to 21. In verse 15, Ezra gathered the the 1,500 men and their families together at the Ahava Canal. They set up camp there to prepare for the long journey to Jerusalem. And a second half of verse 15 Uh, Ezra says, when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. Despite this overwhelming response, so many people signing up to go to Jerusalem, there was one big group not represented, the Levites. Now, the Levites were people who assisted the priests by performing essential duties in the temple. Now, remember, by now, the temple was, was rebuilt and operational in Jerusalem. So when it came to the kind of practical nuts and bolts of running the temple. Ezra didn't need any Levites to go with him for that reason. No, uh, the temple was running. 
Now, but remember, Ezra is returning to Jerusalem to bring about a reformation throughout the whole people of Judah. So he needed some Levites on board. He needed Levites who would get alongside other Levites when he did arrive in Jerusalem. He needed Levites who understood the issues that Levites had to deal with. He needed Levites who would be able to explain to the other Levites already in Jerusalem how they should live differently, why and what they needed to change. He needs some Levites to go with him to get alongside the other Levites. Now, interestingly, when we look back to chapter 2 and the first group who returned to Jerusalem, there weren't many Levites then either. And for me, Gordon McConville has a brilliant insight into this. The quote will come up on the screen. It's a long quote, but I think it's fantastic. Listen to this. He writes, The Levites had never been eager volunteers to return. Perhaps the Levites were reluctant to resume a subordinate role, mundane in comparison with the possibilities which life in exile opened up. Babylon will have offered them, among other things, the opportunity to become people of substance for the first time since they'd been barred under Israel's original charter of the occupation of land from possessing territory of their own. Levites may well have been among those Jews who became wealthy in Babylon, for example, in banking. On the other hand, the subsequent history of those who returned to Jerusalem shows that they were often extremely badly treated. I think it's a a magnificent insight. In short, McConville is saying that because the role of the Levite was a pretty mundane and lowly position, Levites would have found life in Babylon much more attractive than serving in the temple in Jerusalem. Levites in exile in Babylon had become someone. They'd acquired property. They weren't allowed to do that in Israel. Acquiring property, giving them independence and security. They now had professions like banking, as he suggests, that were respected. Obviously, banking wasn't respected back then, unlike today. Bringing them some sort of social standing. So do you see the thought of moving from Babylon down to Jerusalem to be an assistant to the priests, expected to do menial tasks, was not in worldly terms a particularly attractive option. And that, it seems to me, is precisely the situation for many in the church today. In the world, you might have a very significant role. You're top of the career ladder, respected in your field. In the world, people look up to you. Your job has given you a beautiful house in Leafy Forward. In the world, you are someone. You have status and standing and, and stuff. But in the church, you're just a servant because that's all we all are in the church. Your role in the church doesn't seem very significant. And even if you're an office holder in the church, honestly, to the world, what we do here and what we're about here seems insignificant and irrelevant. I mean, nobody looks on at the vicar and thinks, what what an important person he is. It's certainly nothing compared to being a chief executive or a partner or a consultant or a professor or a lecturer. And so when seeking first God's kingdom is going to have an impact on your standing and status in the world, that is a very hard decision to make. But to grow the church and to see the church reformed in this land, we need people who will seek first God's kingdom. Since we plant churches in Sheffield and across South Yorkshire, we need people to move, 
to move from forward, which is a delightful place to live, and to set up home in another part of the city or another town altogether, perhaps moving to a, a far less desirable area, living in a less salubrious neighbourhood, where the schools are not so good, where your colleagues will wonder, why do you live there? Years ago, I was asked to go and speak to a group of, uh, of wives at Oak Hill Theological College, so their husbands uh, were training to do the sort of job I do, and uh, I was asked to go and talk about life in the parish church. And um, over coffee between the sessions, one of the wives very honestly said this to me. My husband used to be a lawyer. Now in a few months' time, he's going to be a curate in the Church of England. He used to earn really good money. Now we'll find it hard to make ends meet, having to put food on the table for our young children, buying them new clothes, When my husband was a lawyer, he worked long hours, but we always had weekends off and he had very generous holiday package. We went away often and spent good time together. Now we'll get just one day off a week. When my husband was a lawyer, we met new people. When we met new people, they were always impressed to hear about his job. Now our friends think we're mad to have given up that life. They tolerate us, but they think that what we believe is stupid and that we must be a bit unhinged to have given up so much. Now I think they look with pity upon us. I imagine them saying to each other, poor Beth, she used to have such a lovely life, and now her husband's thrown it all away for religion. The world offers so much. And when we've had a taste for what this world offers, putting first God's kingdom is very hard. But unless many of us will give up the comforts and luxuries and status of this world and put first God's kingdom, we'll not see the church in this land reformed. Ezra needed Levites who were on board and who would make a considerable sacrifice by seeking first God's kingdom. So verse 16, Ezra summoned leaders and men of learning. And verse 17, I sent them to Idu, he writes, the leader of Cassiphiah. I told them what to say to Idu and his kinsmen the temple servants in Cassifier, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on them, they brought us these following people. Isn't that brilliant? Against all the odds, 38 Levites were recruited along with 220 temple servants. And all because, verse 18, the gracious hand of our God was upon them. We've seen this again and again in the last chapter. God's hand moving people to play their part in, remo- in reforming his, his church, his people. It was entirely a work of God. But that said, the Lord uses people to bring about his work. And so did you notice in verse 16, Ezra sent leading men to this bloke called Ido. And Ezra says, verse 17, I told them what to say to Ido. Oh, when I've read that this week, I would love to know what Ezra told them to say. We don't have his words, but I can imagine they were challenging and inspiring words. I imagine he might have said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. All these things you're worried about losing, they'll all come to you. Maybe he said, the Lord will provide you everything you need. Perhaps he'd said to them, you can't serve both God and money. Maybe he said things about living for the gospel now in the knowledge of an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Well, I don't know what he said, but whatever he said, it worked. 
And the Levites and the temple servants were challenged and they decided to leave Babylon for Jerusalem, leaving a potentially comfortable life for a life of mundane service. Dale Ralph Davis writes, the prospect was not glamorous, it was just work. Does this passage by implication not address the Western church today? Is not the attitude in the church all too frequently, don't upset my usual comfort by making any demands of me? Well, sadly, we don't have the words of Ezra that so inspired these people to go to Jerusalem. So listen to the words of Stan Evers instead as he challenges people who don't want to put themselves out for Jesus. Hang on to your uh, seats. This is quite a challenge. He writes, why is it that they feel that it's expecting too much for them after a day's work to get involved in serving the Saviour who poured out his blood to redeem them from the torments of hell? There's a challenge. So let me ask you to look at the example of the 38 Levites and 220 temple servants mentioned here. And if you have settled into a life of comfortable ease, will you break out of it for the sake of God's kingdom and in an attempt to reform the church in this land? Think about being a trainee here. Think about how you use your retirement. Think about going on the next church plant. Think about working abroad in mission. Think about giving up a morning a week to serve at small talk. Think about teaching the children on Sunday mornings. Think about doing something. But whatever you do, don't just settle for a comfortable life. God's people seeking first God's kingdom. And second, and you'll be pleased to know much more briefly, God's people trusting God to deliver. This is verses 21 to 36. So there they were at the camp by the Ahava Canal, Levites and temple servants now having joined them. And before they set off for Jerusalem, Ezra Ezra proclaimed a fast, verse 21. See, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and, and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Remember what's going on. Here are more than now, now more than 1,750 people because the Levites and the temple servants have joined them, plus women and children, all about to embark upon a 900-mile journey with vast quantities of cash on them. See, verses 24 to 30 list the gold and silver and the other articles that they were given by the king of Persia. Look with me at verse 26, for example. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 100 darics, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. My guess is those weights and measures don't mean much to us, so allow me to convert it into today's language. We are talking about 25 tons of silver and three tons of gold. Those are eye-watering quantities of precious metals. So I'd have thought it was time to hire an armoured vehicle and the service of G4S. Ezra does precisely the opposite. He could have asked for the king's army to accompany them and protect them on the journey. But do you see what he wrote there? I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us. Why? Because he'd already said to the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. 
Now, what's going on here? Is this a case of Ezra having shouted his mouth off and then being too proud to climb down? God will protect us. Or was Ezra trying to be more spiritual, super spiritual, more spiritual than the Bible? Reminds me of a story. It's not a particularly funny story, so don't get ready for a big belly laugh, but it's a great story all the same, of a man who was caught up in floods and stranded in his home. Uh, Two men in a rowing boat came to his house and offered to take him to safety. No, thank you, the man said. God will help me. As the waters rose, the man moved up onto the second floor of his house. Men in a motorboat came by and offered to rescue him again. The man declined. No, no, God will help me. As the waters rose higher, the man went onto the roof of his house and a helicopter came by, threw down a rope, urging the man to grab it. Once more, the man declined, said, no, God will help me. Tragically, the man drowned and in heaven... He asked God, why didn't you save me when I asked you to? And God replied, I sent you a rowing boat, a motorboat and a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? Hey, it wasn't that funny, but it was worth telling, wasn't it? I made you ask, is that Ezra here? Refusing to the help help that God himself sends through the king's army? I don't think it is. Was he just being super spiritual? I don't think he was. I think he's to be commended here. For here is Ezra ready to bank on God. Here is Ezra living out what he believes. He had told the king, verse 22, the gracious hand of our God is upon everyone who looks to him. And now he is ready to put his money where his mouth is. So he fasted and prayed. And he got everyone else to fast and pray because he knew that unless God protected them, they would be toast. Several thousand people on a 900-mile journey carrying a royal fortune. They were a prime target for bandits to attack them. So Ezra says, verse 23, we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. And the answer to that prayer is recorded in verse 31. On the 12th day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem. If you're interested, chapter 7, verse 9 tells us that it took them four months, that journey that's only recorded in two verses, four months. 900 miles in four months, and they were completely kept safe because, verse 31, the hand of their God was upon them. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we too can know that the hand of our God is upon us, protecting us, leading us, guiding us, helping us. He died for us. He will look after us. We can be sure of that. But I've got a hunch that most of us don't ever put ourselves in the situation where we really experience that. Where we can say that we know that it is God who has kept us. It's always him that keeps us. But to say, it must have been God. We live lives that are so safe. We're so reluctant to step out for him, to risk anything for him, to throw ourselves into situations where we are out of our depth. We play it so safe that although God does protect us, we don't actually put it down to him. We're so risk averse, we rarely put ourselves in a situation where we have to pray. I mean, really pray because we feel really vulnerable and know that unless God rescues us, we're in trouble. That's what Ezra did here. He didn't just say he believed that God's hand was upon him, but he put his belief to the test and God delivered. And when we seek first God's kingdom, really, 
and then watch him provide for us, it is thrilling. And when we consider the desperate state of the church in this land and the fact that in this broken world we are living under the shadow of death, oh my, how we need Christian people to throw themselves into relying on God to reform the church, doing daring things for him. And when large numbers of us together seek first God's kingdom, whole families among us, making sacrifices for him and not living for the trinkets of this life, putting our lives on the line for him, daring to put ourselves in situations where we have to rely on him, when we do that and he delivers then we'll see the church in this land transformed and our lives will be thrilling and exciting. So you up for it? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you very much indeed again for this little book of Ezra and all that we're learning. We thank you for Ezra and all those who went from Babylon to Jerusalem. We thank you for your wonderful, gracious hand being upon them. And we pray that you would move in us, that we would have a desire to see the church in this land transformed, reformed, made what it should be. And pray that you'd give us such a longing for that, that we would be prepared to step out, uh, to live lives that are yet dangerous, risky, and yet not risky at all because they are lives in your hands. Stir us up and push us out that we may be the people we ought to be. In Jesus' name, amen.